thank you for downloading this recording of Animism and Object Behaviour, a panel discussion produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia for the Vernissage Weekend of the 2016 Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art. Facilitated by West Australian curator and writer Gemma Weston, this panel focuses upon the role of animism in the work of artists Lola Greeno, Louise Hazelton and Claire Millage. This panel addresses the question, can animism, as a system of exchanges and relationships between human and non-human subjects, help us to understand ourselves and our ecology? Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge that the land that we meet on today is the traditional lands of the Kaurna people, who uh, are and always will be the traditional custodians of the Adelaide region. I acknowledge that the Kaurna people's uh, cultural beliefs and language are of continuing vital importance to living uh, Kaurna people today. Before we start, I will also just run through some housekeeping. Today's panel is being recorded, uh, just so you're aware. There will be questions at the end, so if you do have a burning question during the discussion, hold on to it. We will get to it. And because we are recording the podcast, uh, the, um, the panel for a podcast, uh, please use the microphone provided. You can leave during the panel. We hope that you don't, but if you do desperately need to, um, to leave, then um, there's no lockout policy or anything, so you can come back in. But uh, because we're recording, please do so quietly. And if on the subject of desperately needing to leave, the toilets are directly outside in the foyer to the left and, and right. Okay, I'm just going to set myself up. Uh, thank you to, to Lisa Slade uh, for... In, inviting me uh, to host this panel. It's a wonderful privilege. And it's the first of a in quite an intense weekend of our discussions for what we've been calling Vondekammer Weekend. So this is the vernissage of the 2016 Adelaide Biennale. I think it's also worth thanking all of you for coming today. It's no small feat to be in a lecture theatre at 10.30 on a Saturday morning, the morning after opening night. I very much appreciate your, um, your attendance, so uh, thank you. My name is Gemma Weston. I'm the curator of the Crothers Collection of Women's Art at the University of Western Australia's Cultural Precinct, and I'll be facilitating today's discussion, which we've titled Animism and Object Behaviour. Uh, I wanted to start, before we leap in with the artists, with a bit of an introduction to the, the panel title because animism is a bit of a tricky term with a, a tricky history and it deserves some, um, some explanation, I think. So animism is an umbrella term. It's used to describe a number of different worldviews and practices where non-human entities, so that's plants, uh, animals, uh, even places, geological formations, uh, and even uh, objects made by humans are thought to possess a spiritual essence so a soul or a personality, which is, um, I guess, a rather unhelpfully anthropomorphic term, or agency, so the ability to act and live independently of human cognition. So to create the world, not just with us, but beyond us. Um, so beliefs and practices described as animist may be among the oldest spiritual beliefs in the world, as old as humanity itself. And they survive around the world today. And I use the term survive on purpose because this term, animism, has uh, a few problems. Its uh, origins are uh, as a word that basically white people use to describe non-white cultures. Uh, in the 19th century, uh, it was promoted as a kind of holistic umbrella idea by Western anthropologists, notably Edward Tyler, uh, who became Sir Edward Tyler, who published a book in 1871 titled Primitive Cultures, 
I hope I'm not speaking too fast also. Now, the title of that book should alert you to some of the problems around the term animism. Uh, so beliefs and practices labelled as animism were at this time thought to be in, in opposition to scientific objective rationality, which was quite popular uh, at the time. I suppose it still is. Um, and also to monotheism, so where a singular uh, deity reigns over all things and ascribes a kind of spiritual superiority to um, humankind. Now, both of these systems place humans, um, although I think it's perhaps not controversial to refine humans a little bit further and say that both of these systems place white male humans in a position of dominion over all living things. So some of this positioning has been fairly heavily critiqued in the 150 years since Tyler published his book, but I don't want to pretend that we don't continue to live with these very real and ongoing uh, legacies of those, um, of those attitudes. But there is, at the moment, something of an animist relationship, uh, relationship renaissance going on around the world, and interestingly, it seems to be very popular at the moment in Western Europe. There was a large-scale exhibition curated by Anselm Franke in 2010 titled Animism. Sorry, I seem to have picked up the habit of pronouncing animism like animism, which I don't think is correct, so please bear with me. Um, I was talking last night to somebody that apparently in South Australia you pronounce dance like dance, so perhaps just think of me as a, an honorary South Australian for the next um, hour and a half. So, Anselm's Frank, Anselm Franker's exhibition... Animism toured the continent in, from 2010 and this culminated in an entire issue of Eflux Journal uh, devoted to the subject in 2012, which you can read online if you're interested in reading some of the contemporary theory around, uh, around the, the, the idea. Contemporary artists exhibiting worldwide also seem increasingly drawn to object rather than perception-centric philosophical ideas uh, collected under terms like new materialism, speculative realism, and object-orientated ontology, which is quite a mouthful for 10.30 on a Saturday morning. Uh, and meanwhile, those cultures, originally described as animist, Aboriginal Australian cultures among them, uh, do the ongoing work of surviving and continuing to practice their cultural beliefs. So you can see this is a rather specific, but also a very expansive term, and what I'd like to use it for today is, I suppose, a diving board rather than a kind of boundary, so something that we can leap off into a, uh, an examination of the different ways that humans, that's us, uh, relate to and understand the world around us. Um, so object behaviours, which is the second part of this, of, of, the, of the title. There was actually yesterday at, the, at the, the Welcome to Country, and I've forgotten the name of the, the man that performed it, but it was amazing. He, uh, I think, summarised actually the themes of this panel perfectly, and I'm going to paraphrase him quite badly, um, but he actually also summarised, you know, centuries of philosophical argument in one kind of neat statement. Um, so he asked, where does magic happen? Uh, does it happen in the minds of artists, in the objects themselves, or in some kind of interaction between the artist and the audience? So that's sort of, I guess, what we'll be looking at a little bit um, today. And we'll get to the discussion very soon, I promise. We're very lucky to have three fantastic artists with us today to help us tease out these ideas, who, as a, a kind of collective, navigate the territory between selves, bodies, minds, families, plants, animals, shells, objects, things, stuff, shadows, spirits, and stories, and a lot of other things that don't fit neatly into those categories. Um, so you can see we have quite a lot to get through today. These artists are, to my immediate 
left. Left? Left. Good. Okay. Um, Claire Millage, who is based in Sydney, uh, who reconsiders our relationship to objects, materials, nature and language. She is known for her immersive site-specific arrangements of objects, which she often invites other artists to respond to, uh, and also for an, an idiosyncratic painting process known as behind-glass painting, which involves the application of oil paint to the reverse side of glass. There's a very specific and quite German word for this that I'm going to leave to Claire to pronounce correctly later, later on. Um, she completed her Doctor of Philosophy at the Sydney College of the Arts at the University of Sydney in 2012 on the topic of the artist shaman and the gift of sight, which I hope we will be discussing in a little bit more detail over the coming hour. And her work in magic objects can be viewed downstairs in the, uh, the Samstag Museum on the first floor. She's represented by the commercial in, in Sydney. To my... L oh, no, to my right. We're off to a great start. Is Louise Hasselton, who's a, a local artist from Adelaide. And following a 2005 residency at Sanskriti Kendra Delhi, India, uh, has been making sculptural works using materials gleaned from the world around her. Louise is studio head of sculpture and installation in the Bachelor of Visual Art at the University of South Australia, and her work in Magic Object can be viewed at the Art Gallery of South Australia, which is just a little bit further up North Terrace. North Terrace. Um, if you're also in Melbourne between now and April, you can see her work in a multi-venue exhibition titled Fabrique, Conceptual, Minimalist and Performative Approaches to Textiles, which is being held at the Ian Potter Museum and the Sutton Gallery Project Space. And Louise is represented by Greenaway Art Gallery here in Adelaide. And next to Louise, losing my glasses, uh, we are very lucky to have Lola Greeno all the way from, from Tasmania today. Uh, Lola has been declared a living national treasure she is an artist, a curator and an educator, recognised for her intricate shell work objects, which she incorporates into a practice that spans sculpture and installation in a number of mediums. Uh, she's originally from Cape Barren Island and now lives in Launceston in Tasmania. And she's one of the very few women responsible for ensuring that the practice of shell stringing and the stories that it holds is passed down through generations of Tasmanian Aboriginal women. Lola Greeno's exhibition, Cultural Jewels, is on show at the Jam Factory until April 24th, uh, and it's part of the inspiration for the Magic Object Project, um, Neptune's Cabinet, which is also at the Jam Factory in Gallery 2. If you are just here for the weekend, please make sure to include cultural, cultural jewels on your itinerary. It's a very beautiful and very poignant exhibition. Um, I do think that's probably quite enough from, from me, um, so we should get down to business and hear, hear something from, from the artists. I'd like to open with a question to Louise because uh, this word animism has used, been used quite frequently to, dis to discuss your work and I was wondering if you could uh, describe your encounter with it and what you, it's meant for, for your practice. I first learned about animism when I went to India some years ago um, and since that time I've been back to India a number of times and I've been attracted to a range of objects that I've seen which have been um, venerated objects, natural objects. I mean, as you said, I think animism generally understood um, to be the attribution of, a, of an agency to inanimate objects. And in India, I saw uh, natural objects such as uh, rocks or um, trees that were, um, I guess, like devotional objects and were decorated in a sense, often that would be trees that were bound with um, wool or string or rocks that were uh, wrapped with um, 
Sorry. Yes. So obviously, you know, um, the materials um, is all based on, um, uh, well, originally um, um, my cultural practice. And um, so starting obviously from the surely. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about objects controlling your behaviour. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Hold the microphone down here. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, that's <laughs> Thanks, Rosie. Um, and I, I suppose for me, uh, you know, once I won this award, Living Treasures, and I thought, um, you know, it's supposed to be all about me and I thought oh my gosh you know that how am I going to do this and tell the story so of course the beginning was to go back to to using the cultural materials of the shell necklaces and then of course going much broader across um to using it's actually the food source from our culture thinking about what how my people lived and 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 ate from these different things and I thought oh and they have become more 3D pieces of sculpture, but still body adornments. I mean, if you look at the Akinder quilt, for instance, there's a little snippet in the publication, which you'll, you'll get from um, the Jam Factory's shop at the moment, um, that I seem to be one of those kids that always ran and told my dad everything that was happening around the house. And uh, so I ran in this day and I said to Dad, um, guess what Uncle Ted's doing outside? He said, no, what's he doing? He's cleaning a chook, but first of all, he's got to pick out all the splinters. But actually, it was a, a, an akinder or a porcupine. So, you know, it was all of those little snippets are in, in that writing as well. And, and you can see that why I moved across to these materials, and, but, but I could probably move further in the future and, and change them completely again. Could I ask, because you've, the move to these, uh, I suppose, newer materials from the, the, the shells has sort of, I read, come about because of the um, sustainability issues around the, um, around the collection of, of, of these, uh, these, these shells. And something that I also read about this sort of sudden Western fascination with animism is that it uh, comes out of an acknowledgement that the idea that humans have, have domi having dominion over the world is actually failing us quite badly because we see sort of um, destructive pollution and, and climate change. And I'm still a little bit reluctant to use animism in relation to your work as a, as a term, but your work has a very uh, sort of responsible ethos, and I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a little bit about, about that. Sure. I mean, obviously, the, the you know, the... I suppose the very important part about sustainability in, in all parts from, you know, the cell necklaces through to these new pieces um, is that we go off and might collect, in fact we're going off in about four weeks to do some collecting, waiting for the spring tide, which is the right time of the year. Um, we will only collect once a year and, and, and I make them last me for 12 months, so I'm very, very careful about that. Also, with, in reference to the Akindakul pieces, um, I get a permit once a year, and uh, and I give an account to Parks and Wildlife how many I've collected for the year. Some years I may not get any. Um, some years I may get two or three, but they, they're also keeping a quota of what's happening um, 
you know, from the wildlife point of view. Um, I wouldn't pick up all the roadkill. As you can imagine, there'd still be a lot, but but that's what um, I, I use as such. And, and I go home and I say that I spiritually bury them in the garden. You know, they have their spiritual burial. And they'll probably... They can be in the garden, in my garden, for up to four months. And then, then I retrieve the quills and scrub them and... Yes, it does, actually, because mm. otherwise it would be quite a long process trying to sit there and, and pluck them, you know, each quill off. So it's a, it's a better, oh, it's a more natural way, I believe. Mm. Uh, I wanted to bring Claire in uh, to the discussion um, because you might not necessarily work with, I suppose, uh, plant and animal material, but you do work with objects that have, in a way, their own past lives. And um, there's a text on your website uh, that discusses... Um, I'm going to find, my, find myself here. Uh, that discusses the idea that an object... Uh, the, an object's passage through time is the way that it produces its, um, its meaning, but this sort of meaning is, is unfixed. And I wonder how you negotiate between the history of these objects and what you want them to reveal in their, in their new context. Yeah, it's um, interesting just hearing what Lola was saying because um, a lot of my materials I do sort of gather through doing trips or um, my parents have a property up near Byron Bay and I'll go there and get resin, for example, um, and then burn the resin in the work. But it's actually this process of collecting the object and that sort of connection to the space. So it's not about you know, buying material, for example, as such as collecting that material and having, like, a responsibility towards that material and an understanding of perhaps where that material's come from. So often I will continue to use objects um, in my practice. So one object might start off in one artwork and then it may continue through for, you know, perhaps 10 years. So looking at the image here, for example, um, the copper mask that's hanging behind the silk on top of the painting, that mask has been used in maybe five or six exhibitions and then also in different ways. So it may have been once part of a performance piece and used by somebody and then it becomes like a more static object. But that transition and those journeys and experiences that the object has or the object lives somehow gives that more significance to me. I don't know if it carries through to the audience, but, you know, it's almost like the object is... Um, is an agent or it is a, a person or something. Can I ask, yesterday you sort of spoke about the objects in a way not dictating what they wanted to be done with them, but they had a way of sort of suggesting the, the, the form of the artwork. Could you perhaps discuss that a little bit? Yeah. Um, when we were talking about it, we were talking about this idea of, you know, are you trying to express something through the object or what do you want the object to say but I never really feel about feel like that about the objects or the materials I feel that the objects or the materials are speaking to me and I'm it's my job to listen to them in a sense to what what is that that the object wants in a sense so what are the properties of that material and that kind of being like a responsibility to the material or to the painting or to the way things are put together in listening to where they've come from and what their material is and how they will work together, I suppose. 
Could I um, bring you in, Louise? Because I feel there's sort of some interesting echoes between Louise's, Louise's, Claire's uh, practice and, and your own in the way that you've described objects having um, independent lives. And I wondered whether you might like to talk about that. Yeah, it's interesting listening to Claire speak about you know the work um, and you know inter and um, focusing on what the material kind of wants to do. I suppose I find that quite fascinating because I think I start off with that, but then the control freak in me comes out and I have to kind of somehow wrangle the material and kind of you know there is a bit of a, a tussle sometimes I think until I can get the material to do what I want it to do, I suppose, which is in part kind of listening to what the, I guess, the natural qualities or attributions or associations of that material are, but also um, kind of cajoling it to, um, you know, be a work, I guess, in the end, to kind of, <laughs> you know, talking about ideas of dominion or whatever. It's, it is a, it's a balance, I think, with me in that, you know, ultimately, I'm not going to say that the work made itself. I've kind of made that work, but with some kind of um, yeah, attribution of agency to the, the, the things that I'm working with. Can I ask then, how do you know when an object is or a work is finished? <laughs> yes, that's a very good question. Um, I'm not sure that I have a definitive answer. No, I don't have a definitive answer for that. And I think often, um, as with you know, Claire as well, again, interesting to hear Claire say that she will use um, a, you know, a thing or a material or whatever over and over. I'll do that sometimes as well. Um, often the work is finished when the deadline's there. Like, you know, if it's got to be somewhere, then it's kind of done. <laughs> and then um, it might kind of unassemble or it could possibly, um, you know, be like that forever. So there are, you know, different kind of um, impetuses, I suppose, for um, determining when something's finished. Um, back to back to you. This is sort of a funny <laughs> a funny arrangement. But we also had spoke yesterday about leaving a work unfinished, so leaving aspects of the work that suggest that this process of, of flux. Is that an important aspect to your work in magic object, perhaps? Yeah, so I I never really think of a work as finished ever. Like it's not to me the work is never finished because even like the most finish that it would get, for example, would be it's in an exhibition and then somebody buys it. Therefore, I don't have the ability to work with that material anymore unless I'm asked to come and, you know, fill with it or something. But it's it still kind of continues and, and all of those materials continue to biodegrade or it, it goes into a different space, into um, somebody's home and there are other objects around it. In that sense, it continues its life. So I don't think of it as finished. But I also think, for me, it's really important that the process is... Um, or the process is a very important part of my practice in that I like to keep things quite porous. So um, by inviting people into my installations to make work or leaving remnants of, of those kind of interventions or responses to my work within the space for the viewer to imagine what might have happened there or what might be there. So I'm not... This idea of something being finished doesn't... It doesn't enter my head. <laughs> but I understand that it's a, a thing for, for other people. Um, I perhaps... I wanted to bring Lola in again because there's a particular work in the Jam Factory exhibition that really sort of just stopped me in, in my tracks. It was a necklace 
from the 19th century that you had restrung in, uh, I think, quite recently, and then that was hung next to uh, a, a necklace of, of your own. Um, so sort of all there, that kind of that history and that continuum and the sense of the ongoingness of that, uh, that shell-stringing practice. I was wondering if you could talk about how that project came about a little bit. Um, you know, obviously, just following on from um, Louise and Claire too, that I use the materials obviously to tell a story that I want want you to know about. Um, with that particular old necklace, um, it is quite old, and um, at the time I didn't have any green mariners, and I thought it was so important that I, I really needed some green mariners in this show, and uh, I didn't have any with me, didn't have any chance of getting any prepared. So a friend of mine um, had acquired this old necklace. It was broken. And so I said, what if I restring it for you? I said, can I borrow it to put in the exhibition? And he was thrilled, and he's so proud of that, knowing that necklace is travelling all around the country with my show. So um, it does. that's what influences those old stories. And we know by looking at those green mariner shells, there's only probably from my area of Tasmania, that we could collect them. Um, I mean, pollution is also now affecting some of our beds, so we nurse we nurse them along very carefully so we don't go back and collect every day from the same place, but pollution such as a boat slip has almost um, ruined one of the beds where these beautiful green mariners came from. Um, but being that old, I mean, they're all very um, the same size and so whoever, we, unknown maker who made it, um, has actually selected it very carefully. But it's it's almost the same, the shells are the same quality as when the maker prepared them as they are today. I just re-threaded it. So, yeah. Can I just ask about the, about the length of that necklace as well? Because I've seen uh, some of the earlier necklaces that are a lot shorter, and then your, your necklaces are sort of, you know, are, they're the longer kind of double, double stranded um, things that seem quite different to those those early necklaces. Uh, what the longer versions of the of the necklaces? Um, the longer ones are more that we now call the ceremonial necklaces. That if you look at a lot of the images of um, uh, women like Truganini, our earlier um, leading warriors of of our people. Um, I was just showing our students in the workshop yesterday. Um, you know, there's lots of images, some with her. And the one that I showed yesterday, she's makes these very long, made these very long necklaces and they've wound them almost three times around their neck. And I think that's been a big driving force to the next generation, like my mother's generation and Rex's mother's generation. Um, it's about 180 centimetres long and then it's tied, so... Um, and I always make that length for, for big exhibitions, uh, the shorter lengths um, that we make for probably that we call a choker length, uh, which is 45 centimetres long, and then there's another one, um, 80 centimetre long, medium necklace. Um, and they're all quite popular, obviously, but more for the series collector or for the public institution collections, um, the exhibition, we I would look at making that long length and... Again, I showed a slide yesterday comparing, um, like, Fanny Cochran-Smith wearing strands of necklaces around her neck. 
um, and then one of our women today wearing some of the first necklaces that I made, about two metres long. Uh, one was a mariner one and one was the rice shell and Truganini wouldn't have threaded the rice shell because it wasn't until um, sewing needles came in that women could thread this very tiny little shell with a needle because you couldn't pierce it with the eye tooth of a kangaroo bone. In the, um, there's a, I suppose there's that relationship to kind of the continuity of history in that one necklace, but you also do a lot of work uh, passing on the practice of, of shell work, and there's a lot of references in the exhibition to your, to your family, so your mother's work as well. Could you talk a bit about the, about that work that you do? Um, I really love actually, um, running workshops now for, um, Yesterday we had two workshops here for um, 22 women, which was really enjoyable. And so we get 22 very enthusiastic women who come in and get to see um, a series of slides. And I always show um, my, like the earlier women, took in any images of her and talk about her and Fanny Cochran Smith. And then I show images of my mother, who's no longer here with us and images of my son and his family on the beach and my daughter and I collecting shells on the beach. Um, and I guess that's always been my strong belief that, that this culture needs to continue and I need to hand it on to my family um, to ensure that's going to happen. Um, and I think that's such the strong link about my work, really. Um, I, I work with um, school groups in Tasmania as well, private schools, um, and we go back from here and in a few days we're going to go and work with another um, little private primary school, um, which will be a bit of a challenge, but it'll be exciting because we'll, we'll have some very tiny young children. But working with them, I always think about the safety. So um, we prepare, we do a little bit more preparation when we're working with younger students to make sure everything's safe and you know they're not going to hurt themselves. There is, there's also, I suppose, a theme of uh, a kind of collaboration and response in both Louise and, um, and Claire's work. Claire, you often invite people into your exhibition spaces to respond to the work with uh, new work of their own. Um, what's your interest in activating your work in, in this way and what's the process that you follow to, to do that? Two questions. <laughs> the first one. Um, so... Yeah, I do think about activating the work um, in terms of um, keep going. Sorry, keep going to the to the one of Tarquin or um, that one's this one was uh, I guess it's like an installation site, but it's not. It didn't feature a performance piece, but there's another slide a bit further down, I think, that's got... Um, keep going, keep going, keep going. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is, um, this is one of the first... Um, this image is one of the first um, performances that I had inside one of my installations, and the image is um, a photograph of New Zealand artist Torben Tilly performing within a space um, within the commercial gallery in Sydney and he's, um, he's wearing a costume that I made combined with a costume that he made um, that he just happened to have in his suitcase when he arrived and um, he's creating a sound work to, to respond to the installation 
Um, so basically I invite him into the space and said, look, could you create, um, create a work um, in response, but I won't give you any limitations. You know, it, it can be any length of time, it can be anything. Um, and he put together this work. And once that had sort of, I, I suppose, been performed, then it, it kind of activated the space for me. It felt like the exhibition had begun. And um, it's not... He used some of the sounds of the costume because the costume has metallic objects attached to it. But um, there's another image just after this um, of Tarquin Marnik performing in another installation of mine at Gertrude Contemporary. Um, and I really like what Tarquin did because he really worked with the materials of the installation. So it's, he's allowed basically to do whatever he wants in the space. So he took the text from one of the paintings, and um, which was a list of extinct species in Victoria in that particular area, and um, asked me to read them out, recorded it, and then played it back within the performance. And he also wears one of the costumes that I've made from beer caps from, that I've collected from different artist openings. Um, and he used that as a percussive instrument. So he's quite literally using the materials in the exhibition. Um, and, you know, lots, lots of the works actually become damaged in a, in a way. But I think that that is an important part of it for me. I kind of like that damage to see that kind of um, the costume slowly falling apart over a period of five years or whatever. I wonder then introducing these sort of rogue elements into the work, um, how much the idea of, I suppose, chance and accidents influence your work? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that, that, I mean, that's one of the main things, that I suppose, about being an experimental artist is that you are able to be open to that chance and to that accident. And um, one of the courses that I teach at UNSW is based, is based on that. It's about getting students to be open to what's around them and it's in a way it's sort of responding to the environment rather than thinking okay I'm going to do this and I've got this very controlled vision it's about well how does how is vision formed how is it put together what's there how can we kind of um, work with these elements or these materials uh, and Louise you've worked collaboratively collaboratively recently with uh, another Adelaide artist Ben Leslie who I don't think is here today been threatening to single the crowd for a couple of couple of days now but um, uh, Amanda could we head forward just the yes um, Ben is uh, a, a, sculpt, a sculptor but he is interested in a different kind, I suppose, of animation. So he's interested in zombies and golems and figures that are, I suppose, almost supernaturally or artificially and quite destructively animated. And to uh, to me, this uh, could potentially be read as a sort of a kind of cynical interpretation of the idea of um, animism. But the work seems such a sort of lovely and um, uh, kind of natural synthesis of both of your practices. Could you describe how those objects came about? Um, the objects came about when I was um, uh, when I had a studio at uh, Fontenelle and Ben um, was working at Fontenelle Studios as well, um, and I was there quite intensively. And in the studios, 
Um, ben had been there for quite a period of time before I um, started occupying the studio, and there were bins and bins and bins and bins of all of these bits and pieces of timber that were essentially offcuts from these large-scale um, wooden sculptures that Ben had been working on. He um, was doing all this, you know, chunky stuff with some um, chainsaws and power tools and whatever, kind of carving up big um, laminated uh, chunks of. Um, offcuts from um, industrial or, or construction sites, really. Um, and I really was drawn to those um, remnants. I, visually, I thought they were just fantastic little shapes and um, felt that they were too good to kind of be in the bin. So I guess gradually over time, I just kind of went and picked bits out <laughs> of the bins, which you know, I wasn't kind of letting Ben know I was doing that at that stage. But then after a while, I thought, mm, actually, I'm feeling quite connected to these pieces and would like to kind of take them further. So I uh, approached Ben and said, you know, can we work on something to, together here? Um, and it was a really, it was a very kind of slow, uh, gentle, unfolding kind of process, I suppose. Often the process would would be that I would often be there during the day and I would just grab these pieces and there was this huge kind of communal space in the central studios would just kind of place things down and um, uh, arrange them just it was kind of constantly arranging and rearranging and then Ben kind of slowly began to come in at night and make a contribution as well. So it was often a kind of a wordless collaboration. I'd do a little something and Ben would then come in later and, you know, just make a little offering and I'd either leave it or rearrange it or whatever. And then, you know, I got to a point, I suppose, where um, I thought the arrangements had kind of gone as far as they were going to go. Um, and uh, then Ben had all these just uh, half-empty tins of paint, so we used, you know, that's kind of Ben's palette, I suppose, not necessarily colours I would have, um, you know, chosen. So we kind of used those. And then um, uh, as things kind of got on, I just thought, mm, I think there just needs to be something else here. So I popped on eyelashes on the little um, circular pieces, which I think was quite a surprise to Ben but yeah it was just um, <laughs> just a kind of a nice way I suppose I'm also acting as Ben's supervisor for his master's project at the moment too so we were just kind of quietly you know having conversations getting to know each other and kind of toing and froing with the work. There's been some really fascinating surprise coincidences with these uh, with the arrangement of this panel so they, these works behind uh, a series of um, uh, um, of oh no, that was the the oh, last one. Sorry. I've only got two in. Sorry about that. But oh, the net Louise, you've sort of made a series of non-functional necklaces, and we have next to us a probably the preeminent maker of of non-functional -function, yeah. and non-functional necklaces. Um, and then, I mean, this is a very long segue to get back to Claire, whose work in magic objects includes a wallaby jawbone which were coincidentally used to make the shell necklaces in the, in the, um, in the, the earlier days of, of shell string. Um, I was wondering if that, uh, that new work, because your other works have been arranged in previous sort of arrangements, but the newest work, um, Amanda, I'm really sorry, can we go right back to the beginning? Uh, the chiffon panels. Um, paleo everything. Paleo everything. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about how that work came together. Um, so I was going for a walk um, on my friend's property, which is sort of out west from Sydney, and found this sort of wallaby jawbone that must have... It must have died in a bushfire, I think, because it was quite blackened. Um, 
and you could have used it as a tracing on the image that we're looking at, paleo everything. Um, there's a glass painting that has a, a head on the right-hand side, a green panel, and the it's sort of like a human head, but there's a sort of a jawbone um, traced into that. So the image is, is from this jawbone, I suppose, and this sort of shamanistic idea of, I suppose, connecting with the animal um, and um, that idea of the human becoming animal and those old sort of um, images that you would have seen, um, you know, in Lascaux and those um, historical kind of famous cave paintings in France, etc., where, where you have this um, human attempting to kind of connect with the natural world through emulation of the animal or kind of... Um, Thinking, thinking from an animal perspective, if possible. But, and, and then these uh, these elements are combined with a sort of fairly cla classicist uh, Greco-Roman vibe, I suppose, um, with the the chiffon. Um, it was that, that juxtaposition. How did that juxtaposition come about? Um, that was actually a bit of a joke that I was having with somebody about this post-internet art marble aesthetic. Um, and this sort of pseudo, yeah, pseudo Greco-Roman um, vibe that was happening in a lot of artwork. And so we were having this conversation about paleo everything and a friend of mine um, who I've sort of been collaborating with, the writer Tom Malik that you referred to before, um, was telling me about how his um, a relation of his um, was on this sort of paleo diet um, Anyway, it was <laughs> it's hard to explain, but basically it was a combination of um, personal anecdotes and then the story and the narrative with that. But I suppose the paintings, the chiffon paintings that look like marble are sort of acting as plinths as well. So you've got this um, focal shifting focal point, I suppose, between the plinth and the object, but the painting is the plinth, but it's also the object. Um, if I could go back to the post-internet for a moment. Um, the interest, I suppose, in Europe, in, in animism, seems to have kind of coincided with the, the rise of what I suppose is called post-internet art, for, for lack of a better term, um, as people become interested in their sort of phones and their devices having, uh, I suppose, um, voices, you know, powers, and you've got Siri who you talk to and she's sort of a, an entity beyond... I wonder if how, how has your practice sort of incorporated perhaps the the internet and all of its many problems and and um and privileges? Um, I don't. I guess I incorporate the use of the internet or use the internet in my work as much as I would say use something like you know the native calitris resin that I've collected from my parents' property in in the same sort of way. Um, so I often collect text messages or images that people have sent me and then reassemble them. I've got a book that I'm putting together um, at the moment that's a sort of collage of images and texts that people have sent me um, and it's sort of been redesigned as a book. But I, I suppose I use the, the images that people send me or that I find on Instagram um, as material for things. But I also kind of feel that those images are often looked at very, very quickly um, and this sort of scrolling through, you don't have a long period of time to spend on them. So I almost feel like by painting them 
or recreating them as a more static object in a gallery space sort of slows things down and allows you to kind of spend more time with that image or that collection of images. Um, I'm going to go for a bit of a swerve now because uh, there's a sort of a, uh, a theme that keeps popping up with uh, perhaps Louise's edition of the, um, the eyelashes to Ben's work about, I suppose, personification and these kind of sculptural objects having kind of a bodily sense. I wonder if you could talk about the relationship between your objects and, and the body. Is that something that you consider in the work? I think if I'm making a three-dimensional object, I'm, I'm putting a thing out there and I'm asking people to come and engage with it in some way, that there's going to be a bodily response in some way. In fact, in an earlier exhibition, someone made the comment that he um, had a very strong desire to mimic the kind of arrangements that I'd made with his body, which I thought was a really interesting thing. I mean, I think... What do I think? I think that um, the qualities of the objects that I make sometimes, I do want them to kind of somehow relate back to your body because I think you're going to have a physical response in some way. So if I'm using, say, a rock or the, the big ball of, you know, sizal in the gallery at the moment, you know, hopefully people will kind of just, I don't know, in, in immediately have a sense of the, um, the weight of that thing. And then I think, you know, probably in a very subconscious way, but I think um, unavoidably it kind of is a comparison to your own physical existence in, in some way. And the weight in this case is kind of contained again or, or controlled in some way. So in a very kind of, you know, back of my consciousness kind of way, I think that the pieces, the things that are in front of people, I do want them to have a bodily, um, you know, response to. And that's not necessarily separate to a, you know, intellectual response. I don't think those things are separate from each other, but, you know, there's a kind of a a strange way that you kind of do approach, a physical way of approaching those things, hopefully. Um, and Lola, your work is, I mean, it's sort of the necklaces are literally made to, to be uh, to be worn, I suppose. And the display of the, the objects in the jam factory uh, presents this relationship with your body. You see yourself reflected in the, in the display cases and you get a sense of the, the kind of absent person that would be wearing, uh, wearing that necklace. But you also make things that you describe as unwearable necklaces. And I was wondering if you could talk about the thinking behind those two, I suppose, different categories. I think um, with the un unwearable pieces, uh, probably influenced more from, the, originally from the shell necklaces, obviously. So, you know, out of the quills or the muscles, I could have probably made any sort of sculptural piece. But it, it had to relate back to the original women wearing the necklaces on their body and and I'm also very particular about how the pieces are displayed. I, I mean, I was in a exhibition that travelled around the country, now finished, um, and the first time I went to see the show after the opening, um, they were only sort of hung on one very narrow 
um, sort of peg it was and I was horrified um, thinking what's this going to do to them is going to stretch them and you know pull them out of shape um, because I said well they should be they should look, look like they've worn on the body and uh, you can see them in other places like public institutions where the uh, where they look like they're in a little pile of shells, but in fact that's a necklace. So to me it's really important that it does reference the body because that's where they come from. And and I believe that our earlier women like Trupanini and Fanny Cochran-Smith, you know, the, the the longer their necklace, the more strands they wore, was the stronger the woman and the, you know, the leading um, women of, of the people. Um, and the the possum skin bracelets that you've made, you've spoken about them possibly being used in 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 future ceremonies, I suppose. How how do you sort of imagine those being used? Um, the idea behind those pieces was thinking about our a lot of our young. Oh, is this on? That's green up there. Bring it on. <laughs> okay, I'm um, thinking about our young uh, young men and women um, who do a lot of dance and performance for uh, special events or whether there's a performance or part of the Welcome to Country. So really thinking about um, our young people uh, wearing these um, armlets as part of, their, part of their costume actually because they they always seem to wear something around their middle. Um, and I think for me to create something, and I haven't actually spoken to the young people about that, but the other possum pieces, the more the bigger pieces were first made, uh, was thinking about the possum skins that Truganini wore as a young woman and this, um, a beautiful image that I showed the, the workshop people yesterday as a young woman. She's wearing um, the possum skin draped around her body and her hair's cut really short and she's wearing um, not shells but but hair and fat and ochre uh, with several strands. So it's, it's all about, um, you know, body adornment in, in reflection to celebration. Um, I wanted to, also, to go back to the idea of the, the shaman and the shaman artist. Um, I suppose there's the, uh, the idea of vision is in, and seeing is embedded in the, the idea of the artist shaman. Um, which sets up a kind of conflict with where the the meaning of an object lies, whether it's in sort of the seeing or in the object itself. But I might be making things up now because I think you might be the expert on the artist shaman. Um, could you perhaps walk us through that that idea? Yes. Yeah, so um, the idea of the artist shaman, or the, the word sort of shaman, basically means to see. Um, I think Paul Clay wrote that somewhere, um, but. Um, you know, the, the sort of leading authorities on shamanism talk about this idea of vision as being like the primary kind of um, thing for, for the shaman. So um, the oldest, I suppose, histories of um, um, artworks in, particularly in Lascaux and those kind of areas, um, there's been a lot of discussion and argument about whether um, those images were shamanistic or not, but then it's sort of been um, decided, I suppose, that um, the societies that created a lot of that imagery were shamanic, so therefore the images were were, um, were shamanistic images. And so the role of the artist um, shaman was to go into this sort of invisible world um, 
and that world could be the world of the animal or the natural or outside of, of human um, kind of knowledge, I suppose, and then to bring back a vision of benefit to the community. Um, the contemporary artist Shaman Marcus Coates, who's an English artist, does this um, in, a, in a contemporary way by actually going somewhere. Like, for example, he did this project, I can't remember um, the exact details on it, but it was fairly recent, and he went to... Um, a community sort of housing project which was about to be knocked down and so this was a big issue for them and then he sort of did this shamanic performance where he brought back knowledge supposedly of benefit for that community to try and um, stop this development project which is I guess a contemporary version of of how the shaman operated more traditionally but the artist shamans that I'm primarily interested in um, uh, artists like Haney Armanias or Makala Dwyer who I think identify with the artist shaman in a way that's not so much about saying this is my vision and this will help the audience so much as saying this is how vision is formed, this is how things are put together um, and that idea that the vision is, is different for everybody and it's sort of... Um, I guess the artists that I'm interested in are sort of illuminating this process by not sort of being didactic about how it is, but showing the process. So in, uh, you've described these recent, uh, these works, the magic object works as constellations, um, which uh, I suppose to me bring to mind a, a, a network, I suppose, rather than, than a narrative. Uh, what's your thinking in, in using that, that term? So yeah, I, I suppose it's um, highlighting that process of of forming a vision and highlighting that process of objects coming together and the viewer making the connection between the objects rather than presenting one sort of final image. And I think that's also echoed in, I mean, I've used um, a fan downstairs to sort of activate the fabric as well. So. Everything's sort of in a constant process of flux, including um, the interaction with with the viewer. And these works have all been shown in various other ways. So I suppose they're a constellation in that there's a wall painting, there's a glass painting, there's a fabric flag, and they've all been used in other ways or in other kind of objects before. Um, Louise, I'm just going to ask one more question, and then I think it might be time for audience questions, I, I think. Um, but your work often uses multiples, I suppose, or groups and relationships between um, between uh, different objects. So there's an internal relationship between objects in the, the sculptures themselves and then a relationship between the, the groups of objects. Uh, is the, the multiple an, an, an important aspect to your work? Multiple probably isn't the right term. <laughs> yeah, multi-components of one work. I mean, yep. Um, yeah, I guess there's a couple of reasons that I do that. I, I am interested in the, the the relationships between, you know, segments, particles that can kind of form the whole, and there'll often be um, pieces which are very similar to each other to kind of make up a larger mass. I think um, I get that's partly. Pragmatic, I think. You know, I don't have a great deal of strength to be kind of working with huge things, but I do like to work with weighty things. So, um, kind of manage it that way, I suppose. And I guess also it's the the bodily thing that we spoke about before as well. I mean, I don't want people to be kind of 
physically overwhelmed by the thing they're seeing to the point of kind of spectacle, I suppose. I want the, the people to kind of no, feel able to approach the work kind of comfortably. Um, yeah. Okay, we've got about half an hour left. So I think it might be time to throw it out to you guys and put you on the spot. Um, who would like to ask some, some questions to the artists today? Oh, people are leaving. A mass, a mass exodus before question time. Question. I wanted to um, throw open something for, for everyone potentially to, to look at. Laura, Louise, Claire, about um, the cultural context of animism and clearly uh, its uh, concept coming from anthropology, which is describing uh, what is seen as pre modern cultures that have a magical or enchanted relationship to the object or totem or or whatever, fetishes have sometimes been called. And clearly in, in Western culture, uh, the movement of primitivism has been about appropriating this uh, within, within Western modernism. Um, and so the question is, particularly within a non-Indigenous context today, uh, what, is, what, is the, what is underpinning and is it a is, is it still something which harkens back to non-Western cultures and trying to harness some of their energy and what's the basis of that transaction? Or is it something more personal in terms of the artist or is it something more relational? That's a great question, or questions. Who would like to go first? <laughs> 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 I like it's a big question. Um, I guess for me, you know, I'm grounded in culture, as you know, Kevin, and um, um, I, I, I use, or, or, you know, starting off with the shell necklaces, obviously um, they tell a story in themselves, but obviously moving on from them, um, thinking about other materials to tell you um, different little stories, because each of those objects have, have different stories about the family and whatever, so um, I suppose we are influenced in a sense by Western culture because, you know, when I look at part of the exhibition, I know what I was going to do and what it was about um, and how that reflected back on my family history. But to think about then telling another side of the story, how would I do it, in, in what shape and form and, and what materials would I use? And if I did it again... I think it probably would be different again. And so we are influenced by um, culture evolves and we move on. I think that's my side of it. Um, I think for me, I mean, that's such a big question, I suppose. I think the work that I've been doing, I've been doing for some decades now, and it hasn't kind of changed hugely, I think, over that you know extended period of time. And it's only this language, these words have been applied to it recently, I suppose, but um, I think, I mean, I do have an interest in, uh, it, just, it kind of sounds really mawkish or sentimental or something, so I kind of feel uncomfortable even kind of articulating it, I suppose, but, you know, I, I am interested in the agency of nature, the changing capacities that, that nature has, and um, I, mean, I was talking with someone the other day about 
the helmet shell works, which are in the jam factory, which I made, I don't know, eight, ten years ago or something, um, uh, they were kind of partly motivated by um, an admiration, I suppose, for nature as a designer. Those shells are just such magnificent things. I mean, there's no way... Uh, you know, as a human, as an artist, as a designer, manufacturer of any sort, that I could have kind of conceived, I suppose, of that particular shape and that material, or even to kind of conceive that this kind of amorphous jelly-like thing under the water has an amazing house like this, which it discards. So there's something about that, uh, I don't know, the, the, the power, the kind of inconceivability of those things which I'm really drawn to, I suppose. And I think that's, that's a difficulty for me in my work because I think my work is often very simple and um, kind of trades a little bit, trades. The currency is often um, things made by nature or maybe manufactured in other existences, other, other functions that I'm kind of putting together. Um, so I guess that's one thing about it that interests me, but there's probably quite a few as well. You know, you mentioned before, Gemma, the idea of, you know, dominion, us, you know, Western capitalism, whatever, having dominion over things, which, you know, I think obviously that's failing us terribly. We're not doing a great job of, you know, looking after ourselves, looking after the planet. And, I, you know, I think that's kind of another thing and that's kind of abstract, but I think that these are the things that I kind of think about, I suppose, as a human and as an artist, they can't kind of somehow not be in the work that I make, I guess. Um, you did include me in that, um, in that question, so I am, I'm happy to respond. Uh, when, I was, when I was asked to write an essay about, uh, specifically about animism for the, the Magic Object catalogue, and I, the list of artists that I had to choose from with some, some indigenous artists, which made me feel very uncomfortable as a sort of a white person using this word to the, the if you look at the history of the um, texts like the Golden Bough that document all of these sort of ritual practices, the language used about indigenous culture is just horrifying, and animism is used as almost an insult. Um, so it's very sort of wary of that history and bringing bringing that in um, into play today. But this, especially since I think when there is a um, a kind of uh, this renewed interest by Western Europe, Europeans in, in animism, it seems to be centred on, I suppose, uh, Europe, obviously European countries. And I think bringing that word to Australia has, a, I think, where the legacies of colonialism are obviously just immediate and ongoing. Um, that makes also using terms like animism a difficult space. But I also sort of acknowledge what... Lola said in, in that there has been historically this sort of cross-cultural pollination that is something that I think is important um, in producing, I suppose, understanding between between cultures. So if there's ways of looking at um, bringing together the um, bringing together ideas and finding that sort of space where they can connect, then if an, if a, an idea like animism can do that, then it's probably worth discussing. I I, I suppose. Um, I'm quite interested in uh, Bruno Latour's ideas about... Uh, he has a book called We Have Never Been Modern, which is quite a, quite a claim to make, that looks at 
superstition, uh, like Western superstition, so things um, quite interested in the, the, the like the rise in popularity of seances, for example, when the radio was developed, because people made these kind of connections between disembodied voices and radio waves and things, and um, essentially technology that had came out of you know the the scientific developments. So there are some. I mean, the idea of rationality is sort of not foolproof, and I think it's important to to interrogate those those things. But it is something I was very mindful of today, and I I hope I haven't. I hope I've hope we've got there. I suppose in a respectful <laughs> respectful way. Yeah, I think um, you know obviously all of that terminology is is very problematic, but I, I think. Um, and when I hear the word animism, whatever applied to my own work, it kind of makes me freak out in a sense. But I think a lot of those things that were raised in in Fraser's Golden Bough and then in Freud's Totem and Taboo, um, reading those texts, yes, they are like, you know, terrible in the way that they describe um, other cultures. But those ideas that they talk about, so things like sympathetic magic or imitative magic, etc. Um, those ideas are actually prevalent in, in Western society now and in contemporary society now, I think, and I think that those ideas in themselves are quite fascinating. I think a lot of um, artists, you know, today are kind of using those things. I mean, um, there's a, I think it was a lecture um, given by Michael Tausig and W.J.T. Mitchell, and now I've forgotten what it's called, but um, there's one example that, that one of them is giving when he's sort of saying, oh, do you believe in the power of the image? Do you believe in the power of imitation? Because it's sort of been applied to, you know, in the past to um, other cultures or whatever in a really derogatory kind of fashion. But then he says, well, he gives this example that um, he says, take a photograph of your loved one out of your wallet because lots of people carry them around. And he says, now take a pencil and gouge the eyes out of that image. And then he says, well, no one will do that. No one will, um, will actually do that. But then you turn around and say, well, do you believe that that image is actually the thing? And they're like, no, 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 we don't believe in that. But it's this sort of, this, this play that these ideas continue to exist um, across um, so many fields, I suppose. Um, yeah, not so much a question, but a speculation, perhaps. Um, this uh, shift in the last 15 years, I think, probably been seeing it, towards a, a consideration of materials and um, animism, for want of a better word. Um, you could consider that as being a form of nostalgia within the context of the what we probably feel is a runaway train of the Anthropocene and um, the both the, the materialization of power but also the abstraction of power into flows that no longer exist in the tangible world, e.g. banking and money and shares and things. This is where real power is broken on the planet. And one wonders if um, artists um, becoming more and more fascinated with um, uh, what Louise called simple things, and uh, at least in her practice, but uh, the materials of things and the investment in that material with, in relation to individuals and their, uh, what those things evoke, whether 
that is just a nostalgia for something that is actually already lost for good. Who wants to have a go at that? Um, I'll have a go. Um, I feel like it's not so much as an, maybe, I mean, of course there is a nostalgia in that and we all, I think, all, you know, all of us artists sitting here um, are very close to our materials, like we work very closely with our materials, but I don't think it's so much a nostalgia, but um, perhaps a way of perceiving our environment around us and, uh, you know, you talk about this kind of, you know, Anthropocene era sort of um, runaway situation and, and that is totally true but I think that those materials in a way are also getting closer to us because the reality of that um, that idea that we can have this sort of abstracted pure sort of human world is becoming dissolved in that um, the, the situation the ecological situation that we're operating in now is the material coming back to us now and sort of saying hey like you know you can't get away, you can't escape this material reality because, you know, all of this plastic in the ocean, all of this pollution, fracking, mining, all of these kind of issues are very much part of our reality and are actually affecting us right now. So in a sense, it could be perhaps both, perhaps nostalgic, but also perhaps um, very contemporary and real and, and sort of this is, this is the stuff that we live in and this is the stuff that we have to respond to. I think, you know, that's um, well articulated. I think, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a nostalgia either. I think maybe it's a kind of a recalibrating of um, the the way we, well, reflect on what we've done as a, you know, as a Western world over the last whatever, since Industrial Revolution times, I think, kind of rethinking about how we picked up on something which we thought was going to save us, but uh, is... The, the damages are kind of tangible, I think, now, and that is, I think, forcing us to kind of reassess in some ways. And, you know, what I do is just a very small personal response, I guess, um, to that stuff. And, yeah, I guess I don't think of it as nostalgia. No. Um, I hope you, sorry, I hope you don't mind me jumping in over, over the artist, but I... I think I would be careful about using the term nostalgia in relation to, to animism because one of the ways that uh, I found that animism is used very da dangerously is that um, Fraser and Tyler and all of those uh, anthropologists initially conceived this narrative of progress and they placed animism at the beginning as though it was a sort of a, a point from which human beings would evolve towards more enlightened viewpoints. but what I think has been sort of demonstrated in the hundred or so years since that is that that's, that narrative of progress doesn't exist, that these beliefs persist and it's important that they persist. And these, I mean, I use the word term beliefs, but also, you know, it's a practice as, as well. It's a sort of a way of being in the world. And there's a real danger. And I read, I'm going to name him, I read an interview with Mark Lackey, a um, UK conceptual uh, post-internet artist, where he described the, his interest in animism, 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 um, as coming out of this, uh, the kind of technological networked um, the future that we live in. But he said, um, and he actually used the um, Aboriginal Dreamtime as an example, he said that 
uh, as we get further and further into a more networked world, we return to our primitive past. He said that in print in Moose magazine. It's on the internet. You can you can read it. And that sort of is... I th- he's sort of trying to engage with it, but in that way that still positions it as something other and something backwards and distant when I think... I mean, you can demonstrate this, that Claire said, there's these practices and these sort of beliefs that we might refer to as superstition are very much alive and real and now, and I don't think they belong to the past or a pastness at, at all. Anyone else? Uh, any other questions? Yes. I think it was Louise. Um, who had some of the work was also necklaces. Yes. I'm just curious why you chose to include necklaces of form into your work. Sure. Uh, yeah, that work came about as uh, part of the collaboration that Ben Leslie and I did. And I think, yeah, the five necklaces, uh, they just started off those big, like these are big kind of hefty pieces of wood there that were just pieces that we began kind of assembling and then they, you know, became a little bit adorned as well Um, and it occurred to me that they were kind of like, you know, 1970s kind of chunky medallions or whatever and as I said, at the time Ben and I were kind of just, you know, having a chat and getting to know each other and talking about, you know, families and blah, blah, blah and um, it transpired that Ben had quite a colourful uncle called Uncle Toe Cutter. So in my head, I was kind of um, envisaging an image of Uncle Toe Cutter, even though I've never met him. And so these things just... And it's kind of like um, Claire was saying, like, you know, you're making this work and then there's anecdotes, you're having these conversations and things kind of come together in your head in this kind of non-logical, kind of logical way, I suppose. So really it was just that... that envisaging these things kind of turning into to something else as a adornment. And, you know, these things could, you know, you could kind of put them on and be like cement boots. Someone could end up in the river the next day, you know, as a, as a kind of like, you know, they're a, they're a weapon or a destructive thing as much as they are a, um, a necklace, which is about kind of, you know, decorating yourself, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think we've got time for a couple more. Um, As you're talking, I was uh, thinking about mindfulness practice, and for me that's a bit of an icky word as well because it's another Western appropriation of a, um, of a practice. Um, but the point is that, that I'm trying to make is that it is a practice, and uh, it's about your when you're in a mindfulness practice, you're watching what comes up, what arises within you, um, the thoughts, the associations, your body feelings, your relationship with other. And uh, I wonder if, you know, because using the word animism, I can see how um, Western culture, why, why it's relevant, because it, it's about the separation from other. And what you're really talking about is relationship with other, that is, the objects that you are working with the audience, the space for an audience to use their imagination and interact with other. So um, I don't know what the question is, but <laughs> there's something in all of that. Yes. yes, I think, I mean, again, a conversation with someone the other day, I was kind of making the comment that, um, you know, the few times that I've been to India, what I, one of the things that really attracts me there is that it makes me feel like I'm very... Uh, focused on kind of compartmentalising and ordering things here. And in um, when I'm in India, often things 
I guess are ordered in a different way. There's a different objectivity that I kind of perceive there, which makes me kind of reassess what is the other, I suppose, when I, when I get here. But I think that's a really interesting point, this idea of mindfulness, because that is the the thing that, you know, often when I'm in the studio and it's a very slow, quiet, non-verbal process and, as you say, it is about kind of looking at what the materials are doing yet not giving up total control, I suppose, over them at the same time. So it's, a, it's an interesting kind of point to bring in, I think, yeah. OK, I think we can squeeze in one more. Uh, thanks. I was just interested um, talking about shamanism there and um, maybe the role that, that ritual and um, trance altered states is that um, in the making process is that something you can you're sort of conscious of? Um, I mean, for all artists? I don't know. That just it just just reminded me. I've just found a video recently um, of uh, a performance work that um, some friends of mine made in Norway in 2006 and it was a very disjointed video because I think we we're all quite wasted but um, <laughs> uh, basically they came in in sort of quasi kind of traditional um, Norwegian um, folklore kind of costumes and I think that they were on drugs but I'm not completely sure um, and then they sort of made this video um, where she was sort of singing to him and he was and she was sort of this um, goddess mother or something that was um, kind of looking after him and this kind of became we never it was never really established whether it was an artwork or not or whether it was a performance of piece that was supposed to happen um, or exactly what was going on but it was um, I, know, I know this is not really an answer to the question this is just kind of a, a segue but um, I think it was, a, it was an interesting performance piece for me to see, but it was perhaps the only time that I've seen um, anybody in what I would say like a true kind of trance um, state performing within that kind of context. Yeah, and that just kind of makes me think about the public and private um, notion of, of kind of sacred objects and, and, and um, performance and cultural practices the way that, you know, um, how, how the power of those, those private special performances, you know, that aren't necessarily seen, I mean, it's a yeah. concept really, but, um, yeah, how that... Well, I know a lot of... I know that there's a, a lot of artists and, and perhaps, like, um, I can think of a couple of examples of my own work where I've done performances that were not public performances, but then use documentation from that performance... Um, as artwork or traces of, of that performance or ritual, but it was never supposed to be a public kind of thing. It's more about perhaps someone would then fill in the gaps in their own head from, from those sort of remnants, I suppose. But then other performances that I've invited people to, um, to actually to do in a, in a space um, would be quite public performances, like the one by Tarquin or by... Um, um, Torben Tilly as well. Yeah. Did you want to respond to that at all? I mean, I just... When I'm in the studio because I'm making work, the, the process is not a trap or an ultra. I think, but certainly 
a very different stage to the stage that lets me go to work and you know I deal with the the rest of my everyday world I suppose so it's about um, yeah kind of somehow trying to uh, slowly let all the stuff that somehow might be in the back of my head kind of come out and just try to order that I suppose in a way it's as I said it's a very making my works is a bit like these were I don't know that took us some months to kind of make it was a very slow process so it's somehow kind of a slowing down and accessing something else that's going on but it's you know, I don't take any drugs or anything to kind of get to that state. It is something about kind of letting, let you know, like clearing stuff out rather than kind of putting stuff in, I suppose, is the way I would see it. Lola? No? You didn't, it, just, it did make me think of, um, we spoke about yesterday, about the physical kind of task of, of making those shelves and the length of time, I suppose, that... Um, that your objects require and that they hold. But if you don't want to, you don't want to talk about that. At all? Um, and, and looking at Louise's work, I'm fascinated by... No, back to the necklaces again. Um, you know, if I had my dream, I think it'd be great to see lots of artists doing different work, doing a necklace and, and see what material that they would use because that, I suppose that's the first thing you think about is, you know, we go off and collect and find materials and what, do we get, what, what are we going to do with it? And even when we produce it, we know what it's about, but what the audience think it's about um, is another story again. And I, I think that's that process of of how you get to what you've got, what you see in the in the show, in, in the finished product. Mm. It, it was quite liberating making necklaces, I have to say. <laughs> there was something about the masculine and feminine, I suppose, with Ben and I kind of working together. So there's something quite lovely about offering these things as gifts, as kind of adornments in there as well. Yeah. Um, I think. Uh, how long have we got? We've got, we've got five minutes. Okay. Sure. I'll just oh, continue. No. Oh, oh. Sorry. Uh, oh, we've had a. <laughs> All right. It's just that there have been exhibitions of necklaces by very famous famous artists, Man Ray. Um, I don't know if Paul Clay was in that or not, but many different people uh, who are artists have done, made jewelry and necklaces and things. And it is very fascinating because it is a much kind of more accessible in some ways or not others. But anyway, it's a, it has been done. So it's very interesting. That's why I'm wondering if I'm interested to see your work and, of course, Lola's beautiful work too. Thanks. Um, we might be able to fit in that, that last one if you want to back to... Oh, yep. um, it strikes me that uh, any discussion about um, a contemporary artist sort of having a process that, um, okay. um, a process that might be uh, akin to a contemporary shaman, um, the essential to that is that they acknowledge their foolishness. Um, <laughs> and uh, about, you know, the wise man is filled with the foolish wise man. Um, so, yeah, almost to me, any artist that feels as their foolishness and uh, in a powerful way, that's kind of uh, what's probably the only angle on shamanism that can happen. You know, considering we're so close to the end and considering I've been watching a lot of
in preparation for this, I'm going to say a thing that I've been... Um, and um, we're going to... We'll, we might wrap up, uh, in fact. Because um, it's right on 12 and we have a packed day. I might just... Can you hear me still? Uh, we'll just run through some of the other things that you can you can see today. Oh, firstly, also thank... Please thank our artists for, for being here <laughs> today. Great. Fantastic. And um, we can, there's lunch, and I, or lunch will happen, and then I think you can reconvene at 12.30 for a panel discussion on uh, Power, Belief and the Performative here, again, hosted by Lee Robb, with um, Destiny Deacon, Michelle Brown Sandra, and Sandra Johnson, on oh, Chris, Chris Bond as well. And at 2.30 there's Artist Talks uh, downstairs, also in the Sam Stagg Gallery. Also, uh, Robin Stacey, if you can't get out to Carrick Hill, uh, has a uh, camera obscura set up for the um, the Vernissage weekend. So between 11 and 4 on Saturday and Sunday in the Morgan Tom Thomas boardroom, corner of North Terrace and Kingston Avenue. So Adelaide and Snowware, that is. Um, but do see it. I'm sure you've seen her photographs in the um, in at Agsa already. They're incredible. And thank you all for coming today. Enjoy your weekend. I hope it's wonderful. Great.